everyone, and welcome to the August edition of our Poverty Impact Chats. My name is Katie Rulan, and I'm the host of Poverty Impact, and this is the first time that I'll be sharing monthly updates with you via the podcast. It's been somewhat of a quieter month. It's been summer here in the UK, and that means things usually calm down a bit. But there's been no less news or research about poverty to report on. So in this chat, I'd like to talk about three different things. And the first one is a column that came out in The Guardian a few weeks ago, which was in relation to a survey and a study about people's attitudes towards what everybody in the UK or people on specific incomes should be able to afford. Francis Ryan, who writes for The Guardian, wrote quite a powerful piece. This was on August 8th with the title, Britons have become so mean that many of us think poor people don't deserve leisure time. And this kicked off a bit of a discussion, firstly about the attitudes in terms of what people in the UK think people on benefits, for example, should be able to afford, but also in terms of the methodology or the way in which the questions are asked and whether that's actually a fair representation of how people feel about people in poverty or people with different incomes and what their minimum living standards should be. So Frances bases her column on a YouGov poll that was done in August, or at least published in August as well, where they put 30 different types of expenses to the public, a sample of people that they've interviewed, and they asked these respondents to decide at what income level each of these different um, expenses should be attainable. So whether there's there's something that should only be attainable for people on uh, high income, so the wealthiest, or whether this is something that everybody, so even people on minimum wage or people on out-of-work benefits should be able to afford. And now things that um, we regularly use, basic needs, one might call them, like utilities, such as electricity or gas, and foods, um, the large majority think that everybody should be able to afford this. Although, as Francis Ryan rightly points out, still only three quarters of the respondents who thinks that even people on out-of-work benefits should be able to afford electricity, gas, water or food, meaning there's 25% who think these items should be available to everyone always, only if they're on a higher income. So there's certainly an issue there where people think it's not a blanket coverage for all people regardless of their incomes. But what really hit the chord with a lot of people, I think, in the piece by Frances is when she speaks about the maybe non-essential items, the so-called luxuries such as leisure or hobbies, where the percentages of people thinking that people on low income should be able to afford this are much lower. For example, 60% of the people who were interviewed for this YouGov poll think that seasonal celebrations um, should be attainable for all. So that means even those on lower incomes or benefits. And only 55% think that everybody should be able to afford a television. So these are clearly things that are deemed less necessary for those who are on a lower income. And then the percentages really drop when thinking about uh, issues such as socialising or being able to go out socialising or going on holiday, when only a minority of the respondents feel that everybody should be able to afford this. 
And Francis reflects on this in relation to wider discussions about attitudes towards people living in poverty and ideas about what kind of life people in poverty should be living or deserve to be living. And a very clear narrative here that they should be able to some extent to afford the basics, but when it comes to more non-essential items, more luxurious things, there's a clear divide. Items that a lot of us will take for granted, such as a smartphone, or indeed all sorts of in-house entertainment, such as Netflix or Amazon Prime, they're deemed as unnecessary or it's not something that people on low incomes should really be able to afford. She refers to the workhouse mentality, to people being punished for being in poverty, and how this has notably gotten worse over time. The Guardian then published a few letters that were written in response to this column, and one of them was by a group of researchers who focused in on the methods that were used in the YouGov poll and especially the questions or the way in which the questions were asked. So respondents in this poll were asked about these 35 expenses and for each of these expenses they were asked to say who should be able at least should be able to afford this. Is it only the wealthy? Is it those who are doing pretty well? Is it those who are minimum wage or those who are on out-of-work benefits? And the point that these researchers make is that if you ask people to make such strict choices in a multiple choice setting, their choices may not always reflect what they, they really think. The question might be misunderstood or they're forced to make a choice that they don't actually feel quite strongly about. And they refer to their own survey using a different approach, necessities of life survey, and what they found over time, looking at their own survey between 1983 and 2012, is that there is a shift in terms of the public's opinion about what should be affordable to all, but that these do not necessarily reflect that the public is becoming meaner, like Francis Ryan puts it, but that there's a general shift in what the public, what we feel, are basic necessities. So, for example, things that are always high up on things that are basic necessities are things like utilities, like heating, as we saw in the YouGov poll as well. But other things that have moved up the necessities are phones, for example. So in 1983, only 43% said that this was a basic necessity, and that compares to 77% in 2012. So their point is, UK public or the British public hasn't necessarily become any meaner or harsher. There's just a shift in what people think are basic necessities. And that's sort of a sign of our time in terms of how we live our lives and what we need to, to make our lives work. And they point to the methodological challenges in this. Whether or not the public has become meaner, I'm not sure. I take the point about the methodological difficulties, but I also fully see Francis Ryan's opinion on harsh stereotyping and attitudes and very uh, negative uh, narratives in media that certainly don't give the impression that many people are very generous towards those living on a lower income and which they should be able to afford. A really interesting discussion and one that we've certainly also been engaging with in the podcast. The second thing I wanted to share with you is not entirely unrelated, but moves the attention to the US. A colleague of mine last week shared a really interesting article with me, which was just published in Science Advances. 
And that's about poverty, not the poor. That's the title of the article by a scholar called David Brady, arguing that a lot of search, certainly in the US, on poverty is way too focused on the individual and poor people's behavior rather than the systems that create and compound poverty. So let me read you an excerpt because I think that probably does best justice to this piece. For a long time, the field has highlighted the individual demographic and labor market risks that are more common among the poor. In the process, the field has emphasized the problematic choices, behaviors, cultures and traits of the poor. It has routinely asked why the poor fail to get married, why the poor do not complete their education and why the poor do not work. This has implied that the poor are poor because of the problem of persons, owing to pathological choices, behavior, cultures and traits. And this has led to a focus on poor individuals. He then goes on to say, a focus on the individual poor has been incapable of providing an accurate understanding of systematically high poverty in, in America. Explaining the systematically high U.S. poverty requires a paradigmatic shift to focus on poverty, not the poor. Hence the title of the article. What follows is a very systematic and comprehensive discussion of the issue of poverty in the U.S., focusing on poverty measurements, groups that are at greater risk of poverty, etc. But also then makes a very convincing argument for why we should focus on more political explanations of poverty rather than zoom in on what he calls prevailing approaches to the individual poor. And when he talks about political explanations of, of poverty and systematically high poverty in the US, he also really tries to set this apart from what's sometimes called the structural explanations of poverty. Um, so he very deliberately moves away from just reiterating the agency versus structure debate. So the debate whereby there's either a focus on the individual and their behaviors versus the structures and systems that keep people in poverty. Um, so he notes that it is saying the system or structure is a bit vacuous at times. And when he notes political explanations, my reading of what he says is that he really zooms in on the active choices within a society by those who hold power to either create poverty or maintain poverty. And he sets out various explanations within that political realm. One of them is social policy generosity, um, so, for example, uh, there's some analysis in there based on survey data from across different countries, not just the US, which says that social welfare spending as a percent of GDP has a significant negative relationship with poverty rates. So social policy generosity, if it goes up, poverty declines. All that's to say that there's an explicit policy choice in reducing poverty or keeping poverty where it is or increasing it. There's also issues there around how social policy is designed and the extent to which it penalizes risk or helps to overcome certain risks. So he talks about single motherhood, for example, and how in other higher income countries, social policies are much more designed in a way so that the risk of poverty amongst single mothers, which tends to be higher, is reduced more. So risk of poverty is counteracted. This is not the case in the United States. So single mothers are penalized in that sense for their situation because the policy is designed in such a way that it 
I said it does. He moves on to talk about the importance of collectivization, how, for example, in societies where there's more unions, where there's more collective power, poverty tends to be lower, and also the importance of legislation and regulations and how this is a really important factor in poverty. All in all, a very robust and really interesting way of discussing the bigger picture around why poverty exists, why many working on poverty and also doing research in poverty, myself included, zoom in a lot on the individual explanations, but less so on the systemic or political explanations and how a shift is needed. David Brady really very strongly argues for this paradigmatic shift towards political explanations, moving away from the individual focus. It's focused on the US, but I think this is a very applicable article across contexts, not just higher income contexts, but also lower and middle income countries. This individual focus is definitely everywhere, not just in, in the US or higher income countries. And I certainly take the point that we need much more focus on not just the structural explanations, but also the political explanations, as he puts it. And this brings me to the third piece I wanted to share with you this month. And that's a film I saw last week in a session that was organized by UBI Labs Network, a network that promotes universal basic income and promotes debate about it. And this was a film about Give Directly, which is an American NGO that provides poor communities with cash transfers or, in this case, universal basic income. It was a great event. It was the screening of a movie called Free Money. There was a debate and a question and answer session afterwards with the director as well as a representative of Give Directly. So the film zooms in on the NGO Give Directly, which was set up to try and deliver aid much more directly to people in lower income country and particularly to poorer communities. And the words does say a lot, give directly. So people uh, donate and that money is then transferred directly to people in communities in, for example, Kenya. They would receive it in this case via mobile phone and the cash for them to decide what to use it on. There are no strings attached. There's no one telling them what they should do with it. And in this case, in the film, they go to the Kenyan village of Kugutu, where all residents in this village at the time of the start of the intervention were invited to take part in an experiment whereby they would get a monthly transfer and that would last for 12 years. So it's a universal basic income for that period of 12 years. All individuals above 18 years would get it and it's about $22 per month. The film, of course, shows you how this has an impact on the community, how people are amazed that they actually get this money. At first they're sceptical and then it starts arriving on their mobile phone. There's a lot of excitement around this, understandably. But interestingly, it's not just a celebration of this experiment. It's also quite critical. It's, it's critical in terms of who receives it and who loses out on it and also in the way in which it's, it's framed. Um, so let me talk about the, the second piece first. There is a journalist called Larry Maduro, who's also interviewed in the film, and he's quite critical of the model as a whole. Give Directly presents the model as a new way of doing development or a new way of providing international aid. But there's also a bit of a white saviour complex within it. At some points, you can hear Larry talk about 
you know, how they're playing God by transferring this money to this community. And there's no regard really for the consequences. Many are very good, but possibly some also negative. Internationals come in and pull out whenever they please. And, and that's really problematic. And then the other thing that's discussed more critically is the notion of universality. So universal basic income is for everyone, in this case, above 18 years of, of age. But other than that, there are no requirements. But we see the case of one young woman in Kugutu who's been excluded from the program. And she spends a long time trying to get an answer as to why she isn't included and trying to get included. And she doesn't hear much by way of response other than that the system says that when registration happens, something was entered in the system that prevented her from being included. And so there must have been something with her case. Later on, we hear it might be because she wasn't actually living in the village at the point of registration, but there's never really a clear answer. As time goes on, this woman feels, of course, very demotivated and also really excluded from the excitement that the other members have and the actual money that they have access to. And also there are scenes of communities outside of Kugutu who feel it's really unfair that just because they live in another village next door, they are unable to get access to all this money. So the notion of universality is really discussed here as well and, and the extent to which it is universal. Yes, it is within, a, within that community for those who were there at that point, but not for others. And that creates tensions. So that's a really interesting conversation, not least because I'm also currently working on a universal cash plus program in Bangladesh and we face similar issues. Very much we see the issues related to people who weren't there at the start of the program and also people who live just sat outside of the area that we're engaging with but also highly aware of the choices at some point you have to make when you have limited resources and you're trying to understand how a certain model of implementation or a certain program, in our case, a Cash Plus program works. So a lot of thoughts that were triggered by this film, and I can really recommend it to everyone uh, because it's it gives an insight into cash transfers, into an NGO like GiveDirectly, but also reflects more critically on the various aspects of interventions like this. That's it for this August chat. Thank you for joining me again this time. Next month, we'll actually have someone from Give Directly on our podcast. Please tune in for that. And as always, leave a review if you can. Spread the word about the podcast. That's much appreciated. And I hope you join us again next time. Bye now. Bye.